These are the ones with the pee-pee islands. A chav extraordinaire. A monkey bum. The walking dead. A very big door. And the Daleks do the time warp again. They're called Lucy Miller. And to the death. Here Here we go. Reviewing stuff for Rebels too Because we love our Doctor Who Cultish robots are no bore Hosting prison, why not sure The robot haven and like Paul Orbis Phobos, pretty cool Now and then and here and there We'll follow Doc 8 everywhere Who back when Reviewing all of who there is Who back when Subscribe and rate on iTunes please Audiobook by audiobook Even those that are gobbledygook We'll review them all you see So join us on this odyssey It's who back when Who back when Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a super late night era ending episode of Who Back When, a Doctor Who podcast. Or Docpast. That's right. For us, the eighth Doctor Adventures will soon be in the Doc Past. But who are us? I hear you asking. Confused, bewildered, let me reassure you, Podcast Land. I am Drew Back When, same as I ever was. Phew. And opposite me, across the ether, is this guy. Hello there. I'm Leon. Hello, Drew. Hello, Podcast Land. Hello. Leon. <laughs> dude, dude. Hey, dude. Yeah? What is it, dude? You're actually finishing, like, a thing you started. Oh, sweet. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Who knew that was going to happen? <laughs> Before 2025. I'm as, a, I'm as astonished as you are. <laughs> I've been thinking about this, this being the last original run Eighth Doctor Adventure with Lucy Miller. Yeah. After having seen, ironically, of all films, Lucy a couple of months ago. What, the Luke Besson one? Yeah, where Scarlett Johansson is super-powered and everything. Yeah, yeah. And how in that film, various stages of Lucy's increasing powers are defined by 70%, 80%, 90%, 99%. And I imagined you listening to this and just something in your brain clicking over to... A hundred percent. And suddenly <laughs> there's a text message appears on my phone saying I am everywhere. And and you can write absolutely any audiobook you like because you've heard them all. <laughs> Is that how it was? Is that really how it was for you? Uh no. No. Not quite. And also, as I recall, it loose, uh, spoilers for Lucy, Luc Besson's Lucy, doesn't that story basically just say if you use your entire brain, you turn into sentient black tar? Uh, the sentient black tar is, is definitely up towards 100%. Um, but I think... Oh, that's not 100%. Actually... It's, the, it's the sentient tar. That's 98% of your brain. 100% you turn into an angel or something like that. 100% you essentially become omniscient, a, a deity of right. some kind. Okay. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, really. Yeah, and it sets up the sequel <laughs> super well. Wait, there's a sequel to that? There was one planned. Oh my goodness. All right. Yeah. Slightly off topic. <laughs> Thank goodness we're not reviewing Luc Besson's Lucy because who could possibly find any flaws in that film? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a good segue back to this one, because for a while I was thinking there wouldn't be any flaws in this. Yeah. There are a few things. Before we pressed record, we we both sort of, well, I recently looked at my list of notes. There are not many negatives on that. And this is a double feature. Yeah. Any negatives are at the level of nitpick and eh, would have preferred something else. Yeah. But I'm, I'm really pleased because this is the first episode in a while where you and I are on the same page. We're in the same page club. We agree. It's not going to be 90 minutes of antagonism. <laughs> I can't wait. 
plus the last few times that we have been on the same page, it has been because we agreed that we didn't greatly admire the material we were about to review. <laughs> Very possibly. <laughs> so yes, props to Nick Briggs. Holy moly, props to the, yeah, yeah, absolutely props to Briggs, but also props to the entire Big Finish crew, because this is an, an incredibly ambitious undertaking. Yeah. Tremendous scope, tons of, oh, just acting everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> production value coming out the wazoo it's uh wow well i mean we're gonna get into it we're gonna get into it yeah so that's our top level preview shall we uh start digging into the nitty-gritty via a b-scale i think that's a fabulous suggestion let's do that time for us to synopsize lobify and summarize so take a view and grab a brief and listen to this overview this free-for-all we like to call a chunk of who Lucy and Alex are enjoying their gap year in Thailand when a deadly pandemic engulfs the earth and Susan pulls some strings to whisk them back to the UK. Susan reports that in England it's bad and getting worse. The hospitals are swamped and she doesn't think it'll be long before it all collapses unless they implement a new tier four and cancel Christmas. Stat! That pandemic is but stage one of the turmoil befalling the human race, though. For once again, the Daleks are planning an invasion of Earth. Waiting desperately for the Doctor to answer their distress call, it falls upon Lucy, Alex, and Susan to lead the revolution. Doc, meanwhile, isn't dilly-dallying, though, and en route to his kin and companion, crosses paths with an associate of the Daleks, who's up to his usual monkery. Miss go over. You are welcome. Aren't you just... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I've already mentioned Nick Briggs. I mentioned Nick Briggs because he wrote this, he directed it, he's Mr. Big Finish, he's Mr. Executive Producer. Yep. I mean, this is... And he is Mr. Daleks. He is the Dalek (laughs) voice in general. Yeah, he probably has the most lines of anyone if you add up all the different Daleks. Exactly. Yeah, that leads me on to a a small introductory point. The Daleks have a lot more to say here than you usually get. Yeah, agreed. There's more of a distinction between different Daleks in this one than we normally get as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, most Daleks otherwise are basically just Nick Briggs screaming at Nick Briggs. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost as though the Daleks normally, both in Big Finish and in the TV show itself, in fact, every decade of this TV show, the Daleks are like a defunct hive mind. They are all the same, you know, bits of the same identity, but they're failing to communicate with each other. Yeah. Whereas here, they are actually interacting. There is a, a new Dalek, you know, the time controller units, etc. New to us, at least. New to us. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, that's that's absolutely correct. But I, I do feel like he's made an extra effort to distinguish the different Daleks in this one. Yeah, because in TV Daleks, especially, you have that normal Dalek, and then occasionally you will get a deep Dalek. And those are the only two apart from dalek sec and um oh the, the weird one from rtd's era he <laughs> wasn't yeah. really a dalek at all he was just no, an yeah. insane blob who yeah. actually isn't that dissimilar to the dalek time controller in a way if possibly yeah the time controller has the same some, there's definitely conce- conceptual overlap in i was 
throne all through time and space and went mad. Definitely true. Yes, I agree with that. But but in addition to that, I feel like there's the dialogue here between different Daleks is more meaningful than than the normal Dalek dialogue. Normally, we just get a Dalek telling another Dalek what both of them should already know. And they're doing that for the benefit (laughs) of the audience so that they're just, you know, it's just exposition. That's all it is. Whereas here, they're having... Observation. Incoming threat. (laughs) I can see that. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Whereas here, they are actually interacting with each other. Yeah, although that isn't to say that we don't get a bunch of what we just described as the negative Uh, version. Yeah. (laughs) But there's more to that. There is is that plus good stuff. Yeah, so hats off. Hats off, Nick Briggs. Well, Mm. well, bravo, sir. Yeah, we have ripped apart previous episodes of yours and of your organisations, but not today, (laughs) sir. I mean, I do wonder how close to to JD's premonition we're going to get today. JD having said that this is the season of 5.0s across the board. Now, we've already proven that that's not the case, at least not from our point of view. No. Okay, let's deal with that because I can see what he was saying. And I've said this on every podcast so far, perhaps, but now I can see even more what he was saying because because those previous parts existed. They all contributed something by way of setup to this enormous finale where you're juggling all the actors that have appeared at one point or another in the series and they've all got motivations that have been set up during these preceding episodes in the series without all of those episodes this one would lack some of its punch is it a case of the final act also elevates all the preceding acts? Is this season a 5.0 season or close to it? Let's not necessarily spoil the rating we want to give this, but should we appreciate the prior episodes or audiobooks more simply because this is what they're all leading up to? That must be what JD was thinking. I assume so. Yeah, but I would disagree with that interpretation because while they do valuable service on their own, they could have done that valuable service without some of the poor acting and some of the the jumpy characters and the stilted dialogue and, and the some of the shoehorning can be explained by the enormous jam and string diagram they had going on like, oh, but this has to set up that, so we have to change this abruptly and I'm sure nobody will review it in painstaking detail and it'll be <laughs> fine. I, I mean, my mind goes back to Situation Vacant, where Uh, Oh, um, yes, of course. Where Tamsin Drew was introduced really clumsily. I mean, I get that she has to be the one that wins the competition and go along with the Doctor, but it could have been done in a far better way. But do you think the jam and string stretches that far back? Oh, yeah. So you think back in those episodes, as in when those audiobooks were being written, they already knew that this is what it was going to lead up to and that Tamsin Drew was going to reappear here? Absolutely. Absolutely. They knew that because in that episode, the monk has left the Doctor a message, or maybe it was Lucy that left the Doctor a message. There is a miss history set in motion all the way back then that that, that is comes, true you are right i forgot about the monk later in the series yeah no that's a good point i take it back lawyer now this was this was definitely conceived as a unit uh-huh yeah a giant unit a, a giant <laughs> climactic unit <laughs> 
but yeah, um, I'm not going to up those episodes retrospectively, nor am I going to mark this one down because no, nor I, nor and, I. And so let's let's finish talking about those. Let's start talking about how great this one is. Okay. Well, can I point out something that isn't necessarily relevant to this story, but to the context in which we are reviewing it? Because this review is going to exist in the ether beyond 2020. Yes. But we're reviewing this double feature at the end of 2020. 2020, a, a year which will live on in infamy. People will recall 2020 for quite a while. And people will read about 2020 for quite a while. This audiobook, audiobook one, Lucy Miller, starts with a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. There is some very graphic corona coughing Lucy (laughs) material. Um, Lucy's sort of acting as, I mean, maybe let's put a pin in this because I I do want to have a conversation with you about this as well. But Lucy's acting as sort of a narrator at the beginning of part one. Yes, she is. And much of what she's doing is describing an obviously more extreme and more hyperbolic version of the reality that we have been living across the world for the past year. Well, the past nine months. Yeah. I mean, people thought that SARS-CoV-2 was a chemical weapon. What we hear in this audiobook is what it would have been like on Earth had it been a chemical weapon, had it been completely deadly. Completely deadly, no hope of a vaccine, etc., etc. Yeah, and, I, and I mean, never, the... never mind the fact that it's all leading to an alien invasion, but, you know, still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and some of the lines are spooky in their premonition. I mean, Lucy is burning up and she's got a fever. Okay, that's a fairly common symptom, but... She's having trouble breathing, she's yeah. constantly coughing. I mean, it, it talks about people being trapped abroad, which was a huge part of the narrative for the first part of this year. We'd heard the rumours that we were having a good time. People were genuinely caught in that situation in their thousands. Yes, very true. Yeah. And then the second there's a mention of Earth being in quarantine. Yep. (laughs) Just as I mean, okay, what, what are we at now? We're now on the 19th. Of, we're recording this on Saturday, the 19th of December, 2020. Germany just went to a, into another lockdown last week. We, we are in, I mean, like, London's just going into tier four as of, like, now. Yeah, a tier which didn't exist 24 hours ago. Exactly. Like, quarantine is, yeah, anyway, I mean, this is, as I said, it doesn't really have anything to do with the audiobook as such, but it's almost as though it acts as, as a a premonition of, of things to come. This was written in, what, 2011, 2012? It so was released in February and March 2011, oh, almost okay. certainly recorded in 2010. Yeah, yeah. So a, a full decade before and... <laughs> I mean, written and produced and released in a time when when this was all just fiction. Yeah, yeah. So well I'm, done, I'm, Nick Briggs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's an excellent crystal ball you've got working there, or or a palantir, or whatever it is. Definitely think, some artifact. Yeah, I mean, I I really only think it's worth bringing this up because it does certainly for me it does color my reading of it. It is impossible to remain unaffected. Yeah. Certainly in part one of this double feature, simply because of what we are experiencing at the moment. Mm, Yeah. yeah. Anywho. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, That that was the mandatory corona-related spiel. (laughs) But, you know, nobody can hear this for the first time after this year and not make that connection. True. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that there was a narrator. Yes. How do you feel about that? Well, I feel a bit vindicated, if if I'm honest. (laughs) 
I, I feel like we've been sort of talking to each other as we included a narrator because we weren't ready to jump into writing a pure screenplay and jump in with both feet and like, yeah. oh, this is a good halfway house sort of introductory step. Um, and it turns out that Nick Briggs has been doing it for years. Yeah, for a decade. Uh, for people in podcast land who uh, aren't aware of what we're referring to, we're, we're talking about the very first audio adventure that we that we co-wrote and co-produced and uh, launched under who back when they're called Operation Pandorica. Check it out. Uh, it's good fun. Yeah. Um, and, and the narrator doesn't keep up for the whole double feature here. Like yeah. we had it run throughout our one. But yeah, Nick Briggs definitely recognized it as a technique, a permissible technique to do a whole load of info dumping, essentially. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I liked the narrator very much. <laughs> very good. I thought it was a good way of basically adding a prologue to this story. So we, we aren't really experiencing the the pandemic or, you know, any of the shenanigans that occur in Thailand or back, like, right, right after they've been brought back to the UK. But um, maybe that was like a Dominic Cummings premonition, by the way. Um, <laughs> so in place of that, we get this narrator prologue-esque thing, and then we jump into the actual story. And when, when we do, that means we don't have to deal with a preamble. There was part of me that felt like maybe we could have spent more time on that, though. More time on the preamble. Yeah. N- not that I haven't had enough of pandemics. <laughs> yeah. But there's a... Maybe worth mentioning, this is a sequel to the Dalek Invasion of Earth. Mm-hmm. And in Dalek Invasion of Earth, they show up, the Earth has already been invaded by Daleks, and they they just mention in passing... I mean, this is Hartnell, you know, this is, an, this is a First Doctor serial. Slash Cushing. Slash Cushing, yes, you're right. Dalek Invasion of Earth, what is it, 2160 or something like that? 2150 AD. Oh, 50, apologies. <laughs> you're, you're so right. <laughs> AD as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and they just mention in passing, oh, it started off with some sort of bug, some sort of virus was released into the atmosphere by the Daleks, and it decimated mankind, and uh, slowly but surely, you know, it's like a, well, the invasion started, it, it turns into sort of War of the Worlds, right? you know, but we miss all of that, we just get the prologue bit in those, in that serial and in that Technicolor movie, and in both cases, I remember thinking, fuck, that would be awesome to to see i want to see that and what? once again no, we i want to see i want to see more of bernard cribbins moving around like a robo man <laughs> <laughs> okay well it, personally i can live without that but sure <laughs> i don't know i thought that the story was very smooth and very tight i didn't find anything uh, jarring or dissatisfying about the shape of it and the shape of the action as it unfolded. Well, as it turns out, they have so much stuff to do afterwards that I'm with you on this. Uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I, I interrupted you. Go for it, sorry. I also like that it's very apt, or apropos, I don't know which, maybe both, to have Lucy Miller be narrating this as this is her final adventure, final double feature. Yeah. So there's that which justifies it or excuses it, which is nice. And also, what would the alternative alternative have been like oh alex we're having a great time in thailand aren't we <laughs> oh lucy what's happening <laughs> i seem to be coughing <laughs> <laughs> just carry on like that <laughs> oh my legs are all wobbly and yeah <laughs> 
No, I, I, I don't necessarily need to hear those things. <laughs> it, it's actually the most interesting part to me is the War of the War of the Worlds part. Okay, maybe we could like have a few details trickle in here and there about some bug has closed borders or whatever. It doesn't matter. But the interesting bit is the actual invasion part. Oh, that does get skipped over, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. So, so rather than go from oh, there's a bug to okay, now the now we're all guerrilla fighters, <laughs> just like boom. Oh, that was quick, wasn't it? It sort of goes from Susan going, "I can't believe it's happening in the exact same way all over again." Yeah. And then Lucy Cut says, to. and then we spent six months on the ground, and here we are. Here's the next part. Yeah, exactly. Cut to Alex is now John Connor. Lucy is a, <laughs> yes, like yes. one-eyed. Oh hobbling around crazy bananas just dude <laughs> yeah yeah where's the exciting bit where he learns stuff where susan aka sarah connor teaches him how to use a bazooka uh, <laughs> what qualifies him to lead a submarine team <laughs> no i want to know i want to know <laughs> yeah especially as he's not a time lord they went to great pains in the previous adventures to be like you know what susan still qualifies however diluted she is or isn't but alex definitely not but he does have time lord's dna they do say that here that's why he's immune to this virus he does i'm gonna bring in a point that i had presaged earlier um off mic alex had seven percent time lord dna if you remember okay and mcgann was reading this on his instrument of whatever kind and he was like, oh, that's weird. That's low. And my theory at the time was that the monk had been a meddling somehow. Yes, I remember the this Ancestry now. and the DNA or whatever. And I, I remember saying, if this isn't picked up, then it's a minus. And twas not. Twas not picked up <laughs> at all. In fact, 7%, as you say, became in this episode more than enough justification for Alex to be completely immune. Well, who knows? Maybe it is enough. Maybe he got the seven correct percent. You know, the most most relevant seven percent. Yeah, he doesn't need the uh, the second heart, but the the souped up immune system. That's the percentage he got. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that that DNA question completely fizzles out. Completely gone. Yeah. How do you feel about um, Alex in this one? In both audiobooks, I mean. Well, I mean, I'm gonna read out my first note regarding Alex or the player of Alex. Jake okay. McGann can act now. Jake McGann can act. Yes, you're right. Yeah, he can. <laughs> and I'm going to read out the rest of my note. There's feeling in his voice, relief, concern, enjoyment, all sorts of things. I don't know what happened in the intervening couple of months, whether he relaxed or Paul McGann threatened to cut him out of his will, but he no longer <laughs> soaks all the drama out of a scene. And then you hear in the post-credit interviews that in the interim, wouldn't you know, Jake McGann's been doing a theatre course. <laughs> That may explain one or two things. Yeah, I was booked him on that. <laughs> I was rather enthused by his acting in part one in Lucy Miller. Mm-hmm. And I've also made a note to say that, wow, he can act. But then in To the Death, I couldn't tell you which scene or which context. I don't remember when I wrote this, but I did say Alex is back to not acting or at least acting like he doesn't care about acting. And <laughs> I would agree. He definitely plateaus at the very <laughs> least, <laughs> which I, is a shame because everyone else around him is you know, reaching a crescendo. Oh, my goodness. Yes. 
And so maybe he's just left behind a bit. You know, he, he hasn't done a full degree. He's just been on a course. I mean, no course can can make you into a Sheridan Smith overnight. Yeah, but presumably he has, at the very least, 7%, the 7 most relevant percent of Paul McGann's DNA. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Paul McGann, That's brilliant. That's as so we brilliant. all know, is an acting deity. The man is infallible. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't go that far. Okay, fine. When he walks even on tarmac, he creeps the boards. This man is yeah. awesome. Okay. And there must be, even just osmotically, being in his presence, let alone in his gene pools, surely something must have rubbed off. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, 7% is definitely the upper limit. <laughs> No, you're right. He does go back to just delivering the words rather than being the character. Yeah, that's the thing. I can't... I, do you remember a particular scene for that? I don't remember that scene, but I do remember distinctly having that feeling about him in part two. Well, Alex is never really the focus. He's he's always sort of saying, yeah, after Lucy says something. Yeah, um, he <laughs> I has, say. <laughs> <laughs> he has his um, self-sacrifice scene but whether by design in terms of not letting onto the Daleks what he's doing or they didn't think he was a major enough character to get a farewell sort of speech like everyone else was getting although Tamsin didn't either um, yeah, not much screen time. No, that's true. But as you have rightly pointed out, and in case Jake is listening, freaking bravo, Jake. You have proven to the world that you can act. If you reappear, I don't know if, if Alex shows up in a future Big Finish audiobook, by the way. Is this it for Alex? I believe it is. Okay. Well, who knows? Maybe Alex will will be back. It seems like it seems like kind of a big thing to just kill off this character completely. Uh, oh, by the way, let's put a pin in that because there are tons of tragedies to talk about here oh yes but i mean yeah if if alex does return then you know hats off jake uh, go with whatever you were doing in part one of this because well yeah. done yeah well, don't listen to our early reviews jake because we were fairly harsh on you but yeah based on this performance we will not be dreading your return absolutely yeah uh, you're a better actor than we are <laughs> oh definitely <laughs> Shall we talk about all the tragedy? Shall we jump straight into that? Well, yeah, I was going to say that this is Hubak Wen's third companion death or departure in three episodes. Oh my goodness, you're so right. Yeah, another one of those weird coincidences you only get with Hubak Wen. (laughs) (laughs) Slash it's 2020. (laughs) Yeah, Um, the world may be ending. We may be contracting into a singularity here. (laughs) Let us know in 2021 whether that happened or not. You had Romana leave in the last classic. We've had Clara die or not and K9 and K9 and K9 yeah that's four then and now Lucy's gone and Tamsin so that's five (laughs) wow they're dropping like flies and there were lots of flies yeah (laughs) soundbite so okay uh, not Jake what's his name Alex dies yes Susan gets abandoned again uh, yes, she does. And you said, yeah, Lucy dies as well. Mm. I mean, it's not, it's and Tamsin. Not, and Tamsin, yeah. It's incredibly tragic. Do you feel that Lucy... Do, do you feel that Lucy gets the farewell that she deserves? I sort of do, because it's not just what she says at the moment of her sacrifice when she's piloting the Dalek saucer down towards the time warp engine. You get very strong pre-echoes in what she says in her recording for the doctors later here and indeed in what he then plays back to himself repeatedly after she's gone 
you know when she's saying, oh, and then I kick you in the shins and you say, oh, all right, you can stay with me. And then we go and live happily ever after or travel happily ever after. And that's really nice, isn't it? And that is part of the same ending sequence, part of the same coda. Yeah. So I think, yes, I, I think especially because of the amount of narration she had to deliver in the first part, certainly through sheer weight of words, Sheridan Smith, Lucy Miller adequately represented here. I agree with you. Um, but. Uh, it's it's not even really a but because I'm I'm happy that it wasn't a cheap cop out. Mm. But it's <laughs> I, I'm, so... I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to pull you up there okay. on that word you used. You okay. did mention the word but I did, but I mean I this is partly why I asked, does Alex return? Because I I know that there are others, we talked about this before pressing records, uh, that there are other Lucy Miller stories, but they're they're set before this time. Yes. But this is such an incredibly tragic thing to befall any character. And certainly mm. one that we have really come to to enjoy to to care about over the course of four seasons yeah and whom the doctor cared about yeah, yeah and whom in his post-credit interviews it was abundantly clear paul mcgann really cared about exactly so it, so I, I i guess what i'm saying is it's not that i'm displeased with the ending it's that i'm hoping that this isn't the ending because if it is okay. the ending then it's not a letdown for, for me but i do feel like this character is just really hard done by I sort of see what you're saying. I mean, if this were an opera, it would be a Wagnerian day and a half or whatever. It would be the Lucy Dameron and... And at the end, she would get a finishing aria or whatever with a sustained high note that went on for 15 minutes. And she doesn't quite get that. She gets to say, Lucy Bleeding Miller! And then then she's gone. If if you're doing the opera... I mean, okay, it turns out after four seasons, the Lucy Miller story was a tragedy. And I Mm. never expected that to be the case. I always expected Mm. this to be a comedy. When she and the Doctor part ways, I expected it to be, yeah, fine, go off and travel with Alex on a narrative that literally no one gives a shit about, or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or say that you've had enough and, and, you know, retire to Earth, like tons of companions do. But yeah. be happy, not give up everything to die in, a, in an inter-apocalyptic landscape. Yeah. After having most of your eyesight and your mobility just taken away from you, having yeah. been beaten down and stripped away, first of all, and then rather than it being restored, nope, actually, she just died. Exactly. Yeah, I can see that. Although, I mean... It's not necessarily Nick, a negative. It's just yeah. a, you know, give me a positive as well. <laughs> well, I mean, Nick Briggs in his post-credit interviews was saying about how he wanted, A, the Doctor to be completely broken by this and that is enabled by b the tragedy being that much more unflinching than we usually get yeah especially with the clara thing that we're talking about in the parallel new who channel when she isn't dead and she comes back and and that just undoes the power of her exit which we've just reviewed and we don't want another version of that no that's and true Moffat does that over and over again and kudos to Nick Briggs he is not so sentimental Nick Briggs is is a bastard yeah in the best possible way yeah but this he is gets not... results damn it <laughs> but this isn't just Lucy Miller Lucy Miller here is a representative of so much more Lucy Miller dies mm-hmm. Alex dies 
Susan loses her son. Yeah. She's already lost her husband. Now she's losing her son. North America is a fucking crater. <laughs> yeah. Billions have died. <laughs> I can go on, but it's a long mm. list of people suffering. And I, I wonder if there's a somewhere between the end of this story and wherever television knew who picks up, you know, the, the Earth timeline. Yes. All of that has either been undone in the sense it never happened or it's been undone in the sense that it has been repaired. But I don't yeah. remember anyone talking about, oh yeah, North America doesn't exist anymore and by the way, like, uh, one billion of us don't exist. If someone thanos us and we just <laughs> lost a whole bunch of people. Well, I, I think Earth in general has been far too fucked around for that timeline to ever to ever be coherent and hang together. That is also obviously a very fair point. <laughs> Okay, so we've had all these companions die lately in such numbers, with such frequency, yeah. that it's actually laid bare a dynamic of the show that somehow I hadn't appreciated before. And it explains why companions either sacrifice themselves or, as you said, happened many times in Classic Who, just meet someone that week and go live with them. Because what other way is there that the Doctor isn't a participant in society and embedded in it? He is the perpetual outsider. So if you remove yourself from your society, you either want to go and live forever with the Doctor and not reintegrate, in which case, sorry, but you've got to be killed off or go flying in a in a diner with an immortal or Ugh, with an immortal pilot or whatever. Yeah. So to all intents and purposes, you are dead to society. You might not have managed to kill yourself because of the sentimental showrunner, but you're out there in a way and we can forget about you. Or you have to come back to Earth and realize that this was where I was going to end up all along. The only one who falls roughly in the middle or gets both in a way is Martha, who gets to walk the Earth like Kane and Kung Fu for a year and shack up with Mickey. <laughs> there is also Sarah Jane. Uh-huh. Sarah Jane gets left behind pretty much for no reason whatsoever, except that her contract ran out and she gets her own spin-off. She does. And she gets to return later on in a crossover with New Who, in which she clarifies that life post-Doctor adventures kind of sucks by yeah. comparison. Because it's real life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even when you are still investigating various alien shenanigans, it, it does kind of suck. Yeah. But at least she didn't have to marry a potato farmer. She could have had it so much worse. Yeah, true. But it just, it just sort of laid bare to me that as well as companions learning from the Doctor and growing in their characters and reaching this place where, they, where they're like, you know what? I'm so noble and virtuous now. I'll just sacrifice myself because the Doctor is amazing and now I am by association. There is also the fact of, well, also you've just been uprooted and there's nowhere for you to go back to and that's so much more prosaic. We don't want to go with that, so we'll give you this. Yeah, I'm definitely with you. I, I wonder though if maybe Susan, I wonder if her context allows us to view the post Doctor companion fate through a different lens. Okay. So Susan marries the potato farmer. She's one of these companions who meets someone that week, yeah. leaves the TARDIS, slash is left by the TARDIS and by the Doctor. But the fact that the world that she inhabits is so different to what, what we, the audience, considers normalcy, mm -hmm. means that it's still kind of worth it. You're still in experiencing a space adventure yeah. 
first yeah. doctor. And it Even though she's on can, Earth and it's post-apocalyptic and yada, yada, yada. Sorry, go yeah. for it. And it means you can return to it, as we do here. And you don't have to go through the whole sequence again. And of course, she's Susan, so she's got that innate Time Lord interest factor to her. True. She's yeah. ready to go at any point. I mean, why is she still on Earth, really? Oh, oh <laughs> she does say, she does say at great length, because she has become so embedded and a pillar of the community and a member of the government. Yeah, but also she was abandoned. She doesn't have a time machine. She doesn't have a spaceship. Like, what is she going to do? She is stuck on Earth. But that is the thing. Because the world is so different, she, perhaps because she is also a time lord or a time lady, she does gain lots of political influence and and whatnot. She isn't just, quote-unquote, just working in a shop, paying taxes, you know, having a regular (laughs) life without aliens and without adventure. Anyway... I don't know what to tell you. I mean, like, no, no I like, I like that as well because it, it, it does make it different. If a Doctor Who companion who was just a regular Earthling came back and then became, I don't know, a government minister or something, you'd think, well, that's weird. Yeah, that's kind of lame. I mean, it, yeah. if, if you pick. Lucy Miller, if this double feature had never happened, Lucy Miller would have gone on a really shit post-apocalyptic gap year in Thailand with (laughs) Alex. But the fact that it is post-apocalyptic makes it more interesting a gap year than if she had just left the TARDIS and gone interrailing. Even though, and I know that this goes against what we said about her (laughs) when she did leave the TARDIS, but it would, by this rationale, it would make it more interesting solely because there is now space shit going on yeah ah yeah it's tough Hmm, okay um you mentioned the sound design or the production values yeah so why don't you tell us what you appreciated about those okay well this is i mean something that we haven't really talked about story-wise is that this is an this is a thrill ride this is an action-packed adventure Mm -hmm. there there are tons of locations there are lots of explosions there's warfare there's a submarine chase there's there is lots Lots of stuff happening. And because of that, they have to go to great lengths to create soundscapes that not only show us and allow us to experience all of those different environments, but that also, I mean, they've gone above and beyond. They make it feel like a blockbuster movie at times. Yeah, they make they make it feel like they've got an infinite budget. Yeah, the the submarine, it, it sounds like a submarine. The music is there pumping in the background. The, the soundscape is, is incredibly convincing. The explosions underwater, above the water, in space, the nuclear explosion, everything is so incredibly bombastic. And it never lets up for whatever it is, an hour and 40 minutes in total, this double feature, it never lets up. There is constantly lots of just perfect sound editing going on. Yeah, there is one sound effect in particular where the second missile is shot from the submarine. Ah. The one that finally does for the saucer that the Doctor is being held prisoner in. Yeah. And you hear the alarms and the wailing and the Dalek blabbering and all the malfunctioning machinery of the ship sort of broadly in front of you and to your right and then it feels like deep down on the left 
the missile you hear it just start to approach and you see it exactly as you would see it in a film you see the trajectory of it coming up diagonally across your mental field of view until it <laughs> smashes into the saucer in the middle and then the explode it's brilliant i love your fascination with the stereo application of sound effects by big finish productions <laughs> well they used it multiple times here and they did it really well it, it it goes um, for other things as well when things aren't exploding. When Susan first sees Alex and Lucy arrive at RAF Bryce Norton, which is the next town over, by the way, I, I hear the planes <laughs> um, running their engines on the runway nearly every night. Yeah, that's Lucy. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, Susan, uh, well, first, first of all, Lucy calls out, Hey, I'm over here. Just give me a couple of minutes or something. And <laughs> she's far off in the distance and you hear Susan quieter, quieter delivery, but much louder in your headphones, seeing her from afar going, Oh dear, what's happened to Lucy? And that's better than any description of these are exactly the injuries that I've accrued could ever be. It's, it's the distance as well as the direction they used the whole, I mean, they've only got two channels but they made a whole world out of them. I mean, that's brilliant. Yeah, there's. I don't know what audio editing theory goes into it or what theory lies behind it, but they have wielded that savvy and that technology incredibly well in this double feature to a degree that I don't, that hasn't been you know, immediately apparent to me in prior audiobooks. Yeah, we've, we've mentioned maybe, ooh, this was a cool scene where they used it once. Yeah. But here it was as much as you can all the time and if you're listening to it in mono you are really missing out <laughs> get those headphones on <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> don't listen in one ear while you're doing the dishes oh sorry no no go for, I mean, go for it what about the the coupe de grasse explosion of the warp core of the earth oh yeah holy moly that you hear something happening before the explosion. She has already screamed Lucy Bleeding Miller. She's probably already died. And there, there's like a wobble in the, in the air. You can feel reverberations of energy through your earphones before the explosion hits. It, it's almost like the, the effect of a sonic boom, you know? Yeah. It's super duper well done. Yeah, and it's not just, here's a thing, and it went pop. It's here's a thing, and it's also a time thing, and it is chewing up the earth, and it's all rebounding into each other, and it's an incredibly complex explosion. It's a whole chain reaction of yeah, things. Like Twenty and, explosion sound effects that aren't just overlaid or overlapping; they are perfectly tied together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Every, everything has been given a bit, a bit of extra attention in this one. I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, I couldn't fault it, and also it's briefly to talk about the music the musical themes they weren't particularly memorable but each one suited the moment that's the thing it, it wasn't like and yeah. now we listen to some music like this Christmas symphony that that bloke composed <laughs> and we were like oh, oh I forgot about that <laughs> but it doesn't make the episode any better and it didn't really fit here everything fits seamlessly yeah uh, I'm I'm with you on that and um, by the way there's probably someone out there in podcast land who's going can these dudes stop with their Lucy Miller and into the and to the death wankathon 
for a moment. <laughs> Don't worry, there will be some negative aspects be- highlighted at some point as well. Uh, hold on, hold your horses. This is going to seem like a weird non sequitur, but did did we watch Independence Day Resurgence together? I've never seen it. Oh, okay. <laughs> You are not missing out. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't think I was. It's utter garbage. It's terrible. (laughs) Although you saying that does make me remember that during this episode, when Lucy Miller was talking about flying the the saucer right into the apex. I mean, that is very much like the end of Independence Day Day 1. Yeah, I I mean, there's a lot that... There is a lot that goes into Independence Day. Oh, sorry, a lot of parallels between this and Independence Day. There are a couple of extra parallels between this and Independence Day resurgence. Oh yeah, like what? Um, so all I've just noted is, and I do want to clarify that even though it checks a lot of the same boxes, Independence Day resurgence is a flaming bag of shit. But this is not total, but close to total gold. <laughs> Uh, so they're both sequels to an alien invasion story. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both have a new alien overlord character. They both they- feature aliens drilling into the center of the earth. Oh, they oh. both focus on the offspring of the original story's heroes. They both feature protagonists nuking themselves to take down the alien weapon. Really? There is, in both cases, a character experiencing premonitions. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Like, uh, in both cases, there's a character from the original a beloved character making a return uh, yes absolutely <laughs> i mean i'm not saying that either one ripped off the other but it, i find it fascinating that two stories t- two sci-fi stories that are so wildly different can have so much in common yeah well why wildly different in your opinion of them anyway yes certainly in caliber in quality and this one definitely came first yeah, so Roland Emmerich, uh, uncool, dude. Uncool. Yeah. Not only did you lose a lot of money, you now owe what little money you made back to Big Finish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's go to whatever that website is where you, you get petitions going. We'll just get a whole bunch of signatures. We'll get every Whovian to sign this petition. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, sorry. We were going to segue to negatives about these. Okay. We have to. Let's try to maintain a relatively unbiased point of view here. Yeah, we've already talked about how Jake McGann levels off in part two. That's true. But I, feel like I would say that Paul McGann has a pretty weak part one. Paul McGann is barely in part one. Yeah, and when he is, he's annoying. Ah, elaborate, please. This is, I think, the weakest section of the double feature. We've had a completely golden first half hour. Ah, man. Okay, fine. I would say. I'll put a pin in that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. And then Tamsin and the monk arrive, and the doctor arrives, and it slows down noticeably. Then the doctor is captured by a couple of Daleks, which seems very easy. And um, he's a prisoner. And at first, I like when he's talking about, well, is there a kettle? And am I going to be brought any biscuits and stuff like that? And that's fine until the ship is about to crash. And he's still exactly the same level of blasé. Like, ah, and then 
that things aren't going so well for you. Hey, boys. Mm. And I feel like that is okay to deliver when you're in a spaceship that isn't crashing. <laughs> it was <laughs> about to be exploded. But um, show a little more, um, not fear, but uh, a cognizance of what's going on. Yeah, compare that to the eighth Doctor in, uh, what's it called? Is it Night of the Doctor? You know, that 12 minutes prequel to the 50th? It's only six minutes, but you, six minutes, you sorry. keep making it longer in your head. It'll be half an hour. Uh, I, I've, three hours. I've so. also heard that before. <laughs> 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 oh, it's definitely 12 rather than 6. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There, I mean, that starts off in a crashing spaceship, and there is terrific tension and panic from the Doctor's side as well. Yeah. Okay. That does lead into one of my negatives okay. for this double feature, but I do still want to, at some point, pick up that pin that I dropped a moment ago, because I, I kind of disagree with you about the intro to this, about the first half hour to this double okay. feature. But it does lead into another negative of mine, which is that part one ends on this friendly fire cliffhanger yeah as in the the ship is crashing you know, he's being attacked by uh, by lucy miller's sub but then the resolution of that cliffhanger is incredibly abrupt he's a goner he is in a coma blah 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 everything is hopeless yeah he is so deep down within himself that he may not even regenerate he may just remain catatonic forever yeah and then boom all of a sudden he's back he yes. just wakes up yes. and 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 they even reference this in a couple of different ways but one of the phrases they used was just a quiet bit of time lord wizardry yeah i'm i don't buy that i think that's almost uncharacteristically lazy writing for <laughs> given all the incredible writing that has gone into this double feature. Yeah. It, it's basically Susan uses a sonic on him, except it's amplified to be the TARDIS and they never explain it. Yeah. And also, it's bad because McGann is 100% gone or 99.9% gone and he revives just like that and he's back to McGanning his way through the scene and he's not wincing or tired or out of breath unaffected. or weakened. Yeah. Completely unaffected. Exactly. And it does take, I mean, it, it takes away from the cliffhanger, it takes away from the tension at the start, or the sadness, the potential tragedy at the start of part two of the carrying the Doctor out. Oh, he died still with a smile on his face, and it subtracts all of the gravitas of that situation, because actually he was just having a nap. Like, they, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. okay, well, there wasn't much tension between these two parts then. But another thing that it kind of deflates for me is that while he is still in, in this a catatonic state in this comatose state mm -hmm. uh, Susan finally has an opportunity to confront her granddad about having been abandoned in post-apocalyptic London with one shoe and a potato farmer yes now that I'm going to leap in and say there's things I like and dislike at the same time about what she's saying oh let's hear both because I feel like she has absolutely told him how angry she was at being abandoned I thought we heard that plenty in an earthly child they were locked up together in a cell oh they? you know what you you're right, yeah. Yeah. But counter to that, I think Susan is exactly the kind of person to forget that she
she has already said that and still have a well of resentment that she draws upon and just keeps letting him have it every now and again. <laughs> well, I, I don't feel like this is the sort of thing that you should be easily forgiving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you left your granddaughter in post-apocalyptic London with one shoe, a dude you hadn't vetted, and you didn't come back for over a millennium. Well, in, in his terms. In his yes. terms, yeah. In his terms. <laughs> Why was he okay with not knowing how his granddaughter was doing for like a thousand years? Yeah. I also thought it was quaint and a bit sweet how she says, I've never told you how angry I was. And in the next sentence, she says, I was cross all those years. <laughs> you said you'd come back. I was cross, damn it. <laughs> Fucking cross. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't say that lightly, Doctor. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean Doctor. I mean, oh, Grandfather. Grandfather. Oh, oh, Grandfather. If you're not careful, Grandfather, I might use the word damn to describe how I'm feeling. I yes, feel yes. damn cross. <laughs> I feel positively peevish. <laughs> 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 yeah, one of my pet peeves is when my only blood relative abandons me in this place I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that that is a negative for me. Mm, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm with you. Yeah. Same uh, page club all the way. Oh, bingo bongo. Okay, it's well. so nice to be back. I know, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Before, in that case, before I returned to the pin I dropped a moment ago and mentioned something I kind of disliked that I, I know we're going to disagree on, okay. is there anything else that you want to bring up, same page club-wise? Um, well, I was already all prepared not to like the fact that this seemed like a carbon copy of the Dalek invasion of Earth. Like, exactly the same, but just bigger. Yeah. But that turned out to be a misdirect, <laughs> because all the time they're saying, it's exactly the same and nothing's changed. They're hiding the fact that actually they're drawing from this other big finish source material and mashing the two plots together, and the whole time warp theme is, thing is coming in, so that takes me by surprise. So kudos Nick Briggs yeah well done turned a negative into a positive this refers back to two other big Finish audiobooks uh, it has what was it Patient Zero Sixth yep. Doctor mm -hmm. and Renaissance of the Daleks Fifth Doctor oh really I didn't know about the Renaissance connection so, so that is where the what was it called the Temporal Interocitor that's what it was oh the Interocitor from quote Nissa's old box of tricks is taken straight from a Fifth Doctor and Nyssa audiobook called Renaissance of the Daleks. I, I've, I've not heard it, but yeah. Oh, right. See, that's confidence as well from Nick Briggs, because I assumed that these were TV adventures that they were referring back to. I thought so as well. <laughs> You're right. I, I agree with you. I thought so as well. Yeah. And I would say, because they played a bit of Patient Zero in the post-credits stuff, oh, yeah. hearing that bit of Colin Baker audio adventure was really interesting. I know. Like, maybe I, I, maybe we should try that out. Yeah, I wouldn't mind hearing more. Hmm, nor I. <laughs> so sorry, let's hear your pin. I'm sorry to bring this up. I'm sure I'll agree with you. Okay, in the beginning, and I know that I said I wanted more of the preamble, yes. but I feel um, like it focused a little bit, like, I feel like the focus was 
less than ideal. Uh, oh. In particular, there is one scene that I want to call out, and that is the phone call between Lucy and Susan, and then Alex and Susan. See, I thought that you would love that because of the sheer amount of distortion that they put on the line, which in the last episode, Prisoner of the Sun, you were like, oh, that sounds amazing. It's been through a million filters. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. All the audio editing and post-production that's applied there, it's getting me rock hard. But <laughs> the, 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 what bugged me was that the phone call was too realistic. It was too realistic in the sense that we heard the whole conversation. And right. when Lucy gets off the horn, Alex picks up and we get the entire call again Yeah, in a hyper-realistic fashion. And we don't need it. We really don't need it. All we need is Susan to just go, oh, are you there? Is she okay? Oh, wait, she's sick? Don't worry. I'm going to pull a Dominic Cummings. We're going to give you special travel dispensation. <laughs> if anyone asks, you're on your way to Barnard Castle to have your eyesight checked. Don't worry about it. We're going to resolve this. End of conversation. Yeah, the only catch is that Lucy has to drive and she's actually mostly blind by this point. Exactly. So just, just keep a hand on the wheel, just in case. <laughs> But that's all you need. You don't need a conversation that is like, oh, how are you doing? Wait, oh, can you not hear me? Oh, what was that? You know, and it's also, there's an element of, I'm so sorry, this has nothing to do with Susan or Caroline Ford, but there is an element of realism that I can only relate to conversations with elderly relatives where like not just on the phone but like certainly having zoom conversations this past year zoom conversations with elderly relatives where like they're trying to find the right button and it's like are, are, can you hear hello can you you know looking over to someone else and they're like do you think he can hear us and i yeah, feel like yeah. that's much of what goes into this conversation between lucy and susan too realistic i don't need it yeah we don't need as much of it i like it for the fact that that it helps convey some of the towering concern for each other that Susan has and Alex reflects to a slightly lesser degree. That's worth picking up on, um, but not dragging out. Yeah, exactly. We don't need Lucy going, hey, Susan, this is a WhatsApp video call. I don't need to stare into your ear. You know, it's that kind of conversation. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) It it leads me into another slight negative I have. Uh Uh-huh. Which is, in previous episodes, I have called Carol Ann Ford out for saying, oh, whenever <laughs> she needs to emote especially. And they land at Bryce Norton, and <laughs> Susan's reaction to seeing Alex is, I quote, oh, Alex, oh, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> Once, once is enough. But, yeah. <laughs> but, 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 can we also please give Caroline Ford a standing O because yes. she's awesome in this. She's absolutely phenomenal. Oh, she really is. When Alex dies and she's screaming and she's talking to the doctor afterwards, I was on the verge of tears. Not right on the verge because I'm hard as nails, but. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from when I'm watching Sliding Doors, but it's a special case. <laughs> she really nailed it. She knocked Sliding it out. Doors. I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off. You go for Sliding Doors. There are so many other other ones to go for, and you go for Sliding Doors. Watch Sliding Doors six times. I've cried six times at the exact same point. It's a weakness. Fair Nobody's enough. Perfect. I've only seen it once. I, I. Okay, fine. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go for it. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, no, that's it. <laughs> I, I, I thought that she wasn't annoying at hardly any point. I picked out those two O's, but the, for the rest of her performance, I have only positives to say about Carol Ann Ford. Welcome back. All is forgiven. Abso- absolutely, yes. <laughs> okay, can I bring up another, not dislike, but kind of a, yeah, really, really? Is it about the monk's super adoration for Tamsin? It's not, but that is, uh, I didn't make a note of that, but now that you mention it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But that, let's hear yours. That came a little out of the blue. All of a sudden, he cared so deeply about her. Did we see that beforehand? Does he well, really was... have that much of a conscience that he would care about losing a companion in that sense? Certainly not. We did see him many times trying to win her back on side. Yeah. In a way, groundwork for his later reaction. But it just didn't seem in keeping with everything else about his character. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. That was not the negative I was going to bring up, though. What was it? I was going to say, isn't it a bit odd that not one single character is prepared to believe that the Dalek can travel through time, but they know there's a Dalek time controller, (laughs) and that the Dalek plan is to install a fucking time engine in place of North America, and (laughs) this happens after the Dalek master plan, which is about the destruction. They use a time destructor, so they clearly can manipulate time. And it happens after, I wonder if we've ever referenced this before, The Chase in which the Daleks travel through time. <laughs> Why is no one prepared to believe? It's like, hmm, it surely can't be the the time controller because that happened in the future. There'd have to be some sort of time travel involved. His name is the time controller. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and since when did time travelers come back from the future? That's not how it's been since the genre's invention. Because yeah. if, we, if we can't travel in time now, then it stands to reason that we will never be able to travel in time. <sighs> yeah, mean, exactly. Sort of, it's true, but in sci-fi, no, it's not true at all. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, there you go. All right. <laughs> okay, so we haven't really talked about the monk. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, there are bits of his performance that I really liked. I can't fault Graham Garden at all. There was one note I made, which was, um, I really like his constant scheming and scrambling. The way Graham Garden says... Well, at the beginning of a line, you can tell that the monk really loves lying and he really loves improv and he really loves it when he gets to do both at once. (laughs) It's having the time of his life when he's just thinking up bullshit on the fly. Yeah. And he's really good at it as well. Yeah. It's a very resourceful character. He's spiffing, by the way, Grim Gardner. Garden. Garden, sorry. He's terrific. We must already have lauded him in... Oh, we we have extolled him heavenward to an Book of Kells, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, he has to be written into a corner in this episode. And I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy hearing him flounder and eventually fail. And... I didn't enjoy the way they rounded on him as if he was a child. They kept saying, oh, Monk, you're so childish. You're so undeveloped mentally. I didn't like that. Oh, that's an interesting observation. I had not thought about that myself, but I think in retrospect, I probably do agree with you. Mm-hmm. On a similar note, they also change the aspect of guilt on the part of uh, the Monk in this one. So when he showed up in The Time Meddler, yeah, I mean, he, he tried to change history and uh, he gets stuck in 1066 because now his TARDIS is this small, you know. Um, But (laughs) he's still kind of a lovable scamp. And in this one, he's 
the guy who cost billions of lives and has destroyed everything. He's he's caused the death of two former companions and a grandchild of or great grandchild of the doctors. Yeah, he is the spark that lights the genocidal flame. Yeah. So now let's say he returns, and I don't know if he does. Did you look this up? Does he return for any more monkery? I didn't look this up. I'd be surprised, although Graham Garden was certainly willing to revisit the role. Yeah, it sounded like it from the post credit credit sequence. And if Big Finish haven't called you back, Graham, well, I mean, we'll write you a role. Oh, very happily. Yes. <laughs> You're okay with working pro bono, right? <laughs> yeah, so let's say that he does return. How could he possibly make up for this? He can't. He yeah. is now irredeemable as a character. Yeah, unless he changes that character to be unrecognizable, because he would have to perform a degree of repentance that presumably would just utterly quench his thirst for villainy. I mean, even if he somehow rewrote history to have this never happen, or have happened, if the Doctor knows that that, that, that happened, then he is still irredeemable. He is still culpable. Oh, I'm not so sure. I think think that um, the monk trying to sort things out, not in the doctor's way, not using his MO, but in a monkery way, in a meddling way, to achieve the same end, I think that that would, that would be nice. That would put him in a grey enough area for me, for the doctor could still be angry with him, but I could forgive him. I, oh, hmm, I don't know if I agree with you. I think I probably would agree with you if at the end of his arc in this double feature, he had said, yeah, but, yeah, but, I have a plan, but, and then not be allowed to execute it or suggest it or anything. But so that we know that he actually didn't have horrendous intentions from the get-go. But at the end of this, it is clarified, no, he absolutely did have all of these intentions. And on top of which, he was hoping to make a quick buck in the process. He's no longer Dennis the Menace. He is now Darth Vader. The only thing he can possibly do to redeem himself at this point would be to try to undo all of this, but sacrifice himself in the process. Oh, yeah. Maybe. A note I had was Uh when um, the Daleks say, yes, you can go back to England in part one, back to your English base. And by the way, the fact that he turned out to be the weird old hoarder who had all the stuff was also great. Yes, I agree. I I thought they were just talking about a, a proper sci-fi trope a, a post-apocalyptic type and no they weren't they were talking exactly about the meddling monk and it fits so fucking well brilliant when the Daleks say you can go back to your Sistine Chapel roofed incredible base of treasures he says oh you're too kind farewell for now my dear dear friends and he says it so falsely I, my heart just quivered and I wrote he never loses his gentlemanly cool and by I, the end of Part two, by the end of part two, he is neither a gentleman nor cool. And that's the part that bothers me. Yeah. But up until that point, yes, I agree with you, but that's not necessarily... That's just the nature of the monk. I, I love the monk as a character. I love that there's a Delgado-esque quality to him that I greatly appreciate. But at the end, he that is entirely undone. Yeah. It is impossible to have any kind of sympathy or respect for this character after this. Yeah. And that was part of Nick Briggs breaking the doc. Doctor, you know, if, if the monk were to show some sign of improvement, then the doctor might think there was some hope left in the universe. But he has to cite the monk's resilient amorality alongside the Dalek's unflinching evil as 
forces that have left his future entirely uncertain. So, yeah, I, I guess it, it served a purpose, but I didn't like it. All the chastening and being cowed and not having the, the genius to, as you say, come up with the, oh, I could go back to my meddling monkish ways and make this all better and maybe maybe uh, still salvage some treasures in the meantime. That would have been great, but no, they went yeah. in a different direction. Yeah. Okay, so should we talk about the monk's associate? We probably ought to, yeah. Well, I've never been a fan of Tamsin, as you know. <laughs> and as you know, Podcast Land, dear consistent listeners. <laughs> I, I thought she was going to be one note. I made a note uh, when she came back saying, isn't Tamsin one note? She's delivering a couple of zingers about Lucy Miller. The chav extraordinaire probably got her stilettos caught in a drain or something like that. <laughs> yes. Which was fine. Um, but then she just became all about questioning the monk. That was all she was doing. And putting the wedge between them and driving them apart and redeeming her before the end before she dies very suddenly but she has to be redeemed beforehand that did you not was, like that it was quite blunt oh, okay i rather enjoyed it actually in a sense this is the more traditional protagonist sacrifice isn't mm. it right before the sacrifice some thither to hidden quality of the character is all of a sudden revealed. Yeah. And it's not like Tamsin was a bitch all the way along. She was not at all going along with the doctor because she had some qualities and the monk got into her head and misled her. I, I get that. Yeah. But she begins to doubt the monk. Her quality is also further corroborated by the fact that the doctor entrusts her with the TARDIS key. Yeah. And then she dies. Hmm. <laughs> It's like the it's the equivalent of uh, <laughs> I don't know if I heard this in a blooper reel or if I listened back to an old episode of ours or something, but I did recently listen back to you and me riffing on "It's My Last Day Before Retirement." <laughs> <laughs> right. It is the equivalent of that. It is Nissa pulling out her wallet and showing the monk or whomever else is in the room, like here's a picture of my dog or whatever, and then kaboom, dead, Gonzo. Yeah. Well, I tell you what else it's like. It's like Jelena in the very last audio episode Prisoner of the Sun, when she's like Oh, Doctor, actually, I don't want to kill you anymore. Maybe I'll be on your side and I'll bring the consensus Bingo. around to your point of view. Blam! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spot on. Spot mm. on comparison. That's exactly what it is. That's the parallel. But I kind of like that. It worked for me in this one. It, it worked for me because it's not really done for anyone else. Uh, that sacrifice was... It was cold-blooded. You yeah. expect it not to be so abrupt, so definitive, so irreversible. Yeah, yeah. And, and it does set the tone for the rest of the audiobook from that point on. Interestingly, yeah. by the way, Briggs brings up that scene in the post credit sequence. Nick Briggs says, the first sudden death of a, uh, you know, a, a player. Yeah, a series-long character. Yeah, but he doesn't say that. He says something like, he doesn't, he doesn't say a protagonist and he doesn't say a former companion or something like that. He says, one of the relevant characters in this particular drama yeah. dies. And uh, from that point on, all of a sudden, you know, this is a serious audiobook. And I agreed with him, but before he said that he was talking about 
Tamsin, I thought he was referring to Seb the sub guy. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because he not... dies abruptly. Sorry. Yeah. Go for it, sorry. And so does the uh, Cornish guy at the hands of the robo men. Oh, yes. Yeah, you're right. Well, not, or not, not Cornish, perhaps, but some sort of West Country, like, oh, why, why can't we all just be friends? Mr. Winsleydale. Blammo. I'm willing to share my cheese. <laughs> Does anyone ask for a cup of tea? I can't do the accent. Blam. <laughs> That's unstuff, isn't it? <laughs> that is unstuff, you're right. <laughs> unstuff meets activist too. <laughs> yeah. That'll all become clear in the next few months. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess agree to disagree. I thought Tamsin was fine in this. I suppose. She had an well, she was fine, but then again, she led to the monk and his overblown reaction to her, which led to not her fault. another thing and then another thing. I know, but she was a pawn in Nick Briggs's game <laughs> rather than, <laughs> you know, a fully fleshed out character. She was she was the uh, the butterfly flapping its wings that led to the cascade of chaos that followed. Yes, true. She also leads to a line that really bogs me. Oh, yeah. After she's died, the doctor turns to the monk and says, quote, because of you, Tamsin is the first of billions to die. Yes. No, she's not. Billions have died. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what you're saying is she's the first one I care about. <laughs> and I'm not on board with that either. And that has a weird parallel in Tamsin is entirely focused when she's interrogating the monk about did did you really not know what was going what the Daleks were going to do with the doctor or what was going to happen to Lucy and again billions of other people have already died yeah at the exactly. hands of the plague which she knows about she tells the Surely. doctor about sickness yes so again it's only doc and Lucy who matter it's one of the major players yeah yeah blind spot yep oh well there's gonna be there's gonna be one or two <laughs> yeah a thing I didn't like about the Daleks, we talked about it in passing earlier, <laughs> but when they are describing to each other, energy source moving to surface, and then full power to weapons, should we do that? Yes, let's do that. I mean, come on. There's a part where they say, detectors indicate external hatchway on submersible opening. I mean, by that, by the end of that <laughs> sentence, the sorcerer is in the drink. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Can they really be so thick? <laughs> yes, is the answer. Yes, they can. <laughs> uh, why? I mean, why else do hatchways open on submersibles? I mean, come on. Just fire a fucking nuke down at them. I mean... <sighs> yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you got? Okay, so the temporal interocitor, yes, which functions across space and time, it's like a beeper that is not tied to time, right? Mm -hmm. So regardless of where the doctor is in relation to the actual core that is being made by Lucy, his receiver should constantly be just firing. It yeah, it's constantly a temporal be... pager. Exactly. So this is what it must have been like for the doctor. The doctor, this is a couple of uh, audiobooks ago. The doctor goes, all right, Lucy, you want to hang out with my great-grandchild? I'm going to assume that everything's above board and I'm not going to read anything into it. Have fun. Uh, you're weird for wanting to do this, but goodbye. Bye, doctor, says Lucy. Bye, great-granddad, says Alex. Eek! 
the TARDIS door squeaks to a close. The Doctor looks at the console and immediately sees a call from Lucy going, (laughs) you were hoping for some peace and quiet, but you know what? Whammo, distress call. (laughs) Sent from the future. (laughs) Oh, man. And the best part is you don't even have to leave the planet. You just have to move in time, not even in space. Yeah, go and live on a sun for a little bit. Don't worry about it. When you're done with that, come back. <laughs> oh, that is a shame because I did like how Nick Briggs was thoughtful enough to have the monk have projected a false time spore into the vortex to explain why the doctor, despite having his perfectly capable time machine, would arrive years too late. I missed that and I like it a little bit more because of that. Thank you very much. As in because of your revelation just now. Thank you. But that while being a positive, does not negate what you just said in any way. In any way. I know, I know. Episode (laughs) undone. Thanks, Marie. (laughs) In the guise of Leon tonight. Uh, I I take it as a compliment, so thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay, I've still given this a ridiculously high rating. I mean, perhaps part of that will be this next subject. I talked about McGann being underwhelming in part one. He was barely in it, but he Mm. was damn sure in part two. My goodness, was he ever. I mean, one of my notes is um, when he yells at the monk to go and he can't even say the word forgive. He just, what a McGanning. It's, I I know, I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we jump into ratings? The only thing I'd like to say before ratings is that Nick Briggs gets in an excellent burn of Journey's End and the whole Davros climax to Series 4 on the telly. Oh, wait, remind me. You know when Davros steals a very specific number of planets to create the reality bomb or whatever it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Lucy says in this episode, moving the whole planet through space, that'd mess up gravity and the air, wouldn't it? (laughs) Everyone would just die straight away. Yes, yes. they would, loosely. Yes, <laughs> yes, they fucking would. You know what? This is the point where, in my mind, I made the Independence Day Resurgence re- re- reference. Because in Independence Day Resurgence, sorry, tangent, there is a spaceship that is as big as, like, let's say, a third of the planet. It has its own gravitational pull. Mm. So when it shows up, like, cities are pulled out of the Earth oh, because, wow. because of the gravity of this spaceship. But wouldn't that fuck up Everyone, everything. All of a sudden, the Earth is no longer... Anyway, oh, let's have a separate Independence Day podcast. This is... I'm going to get angry. Oh, and now you're making me think about how the Daleks have, have drilled down into the Earth's core. I, I mean, oh, yeah. first of all, that's fucking up the, the gravity of the planet and sending the orbit haywire anyway. But also, oh, 100%. The, the, the molten outer core of liquid iron is basically just flaming and roasting the rest of the planet. Either that, or it's being contained in some sort of Dalek receptacle, which now weighs as much as the core of the Earth used to, as in as the centre <laughs> of the Earth used to, meaning the Earth is no longer on the same axis. Yeah. yeah. And the, there could be a Dalek force field at work that I may have missed while I was listening. Yeah. There was Congratulations, Madagascar, of- you're now the South Pole. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, these yeah. these are minor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We love it. <laughs> should we should we rate how much we love it? Oh, let's do just that. And now it is time to rate this. Did we love or hate this? Bing bong, bing bong, hey la 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 la. Ratings. Right, Rooney and cheesecakes. Welcome to the 
our mini section of this podcast episode. <laughs> we have no listener minis. And also it has fallen upon me to start us off because I lost the fingertip on tip of Noel's game. All right, here we go. I'm still not entirely sure about the number I've assigned to this, but okay, here we go. I would like once more to acknowledge what we already said at the very start of this review, that starting to listen to this double feature that was produced some, you know, a, a decade ago, but starting to listen to it at the end of 2020, year of wall-to-wall disappointment and calamity, and two minutes in, we plunge straight into gritty plague descriptions and COVID coughs and yada yada yada. It means that this this audiobook means so much more right now than it would have 10 years ago when it was written. Anyway. Okay, but I, I don't want to get bogged down in that. Back on point, back to this story. This this is a very ambitious double feature. And I have mentioned this previously on Who Back When. I mentioned this when we reviewed the Dalek invasion of Earth. I mentioned this when we reviewed the Dalek uh, invasion... Dalek invasion of Earth 2150 AD, whatever, whatever the shit it's called. I love a good post-apocalyptic setting. And the fact that this is an inter-apocalyptic setting in no way makes an exception of this. What a sequel to Dalek Invasion of Earth. We've already said several locations, multiple modes of transport, bunch of characters, uh, practically non-stop thrills. It is, in every sense of the word, a blockbuster. The acting is mostly very good. Caroline Ford, we kind of mentioned this before. She's great. Brava, Caroline Ford. More compelling, I felt, than in her last appearance in Audio Who. Oh, Sheridan she's Smith, though. every time. Absolutely, yes. And please come back, Caroline. Um, oh, we, we have to pick up in Susan's War at some point. Oh, you're looking forward to it. Yes, please. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. Please. Another member of the cast who is tremendous is Sheridan Smith. She really gets to show an impressive range here. She goes from elation to utter tragedy, from gap year bopper via plague suffering convalescent to freedom fighter, from wide eyed idealist to one eyed disillusioned suicide bomber. <laughs> Yeah. She she goes from elation to utter tragedy in exactly the excerpt from the episode they repeat after the credits where she goes, yay! Because she's finally heard the Doctor's voice again and then, you're on that ship, aren't you? That they're going to fire the missile at. That happens in a second. Yeah. And, I mean, she turns on a dime and is so convincing every single time. She's fantastic. I already respected Sheridan Smith as a performer before. I now do so far more. So, bravissima. McGann Sr., he is terrific as always. You're right, he's not super-duper present in part one. He is more so in part two, but he's wonderful. And I, I swear, Paul McGann must have made a deal with one devil or another, because the man never missteps. <laughs> and you can even hear in his irresistible timbre that he's having a good hair day as he's laying down these tracks. It is simply unnatural. McGann Jr., meanwhile, <laughs> he was good in part one. I felt less so in part two. I, I, I've added in my notes as a caveat, just one man's opinion. That might be just two men's opinion, but (laughs) anywho. Mm-hmm. Still, well done for part one. Incredible production value across the board. They really went above and beyond with the sound design, on editing, on, on everything. It must have cost a fortune in stock effects alone. But then, like, 
Oh, oh, you know what? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lucy blows herself to smithereens. Alex and Tamsin are dead. There's a hole in the world. The monk who's responsible for millions of deaths and rendering North America into a nuclear crater. He's just free to go. And at the end, Doc leaves Susan all over again and he loses his marbles in the process. Yet somehow there is still an uncanny sense of hope about it all. And in many ways, and perhaps even more so because of that uncanny sense of hope, this was precisely the story with which to round off. 2020. (laughs) Negative points really only because, well, because of all the negative things that we mentioned in this review, (laughs) including the, you know, the two realistic and unedited conversations, the the weird cliffhanger resolution, yada, 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 yada. But then plus points for literally everything else. So who cares? (laughs) I had written down a rating before we pressed record. I have amended that rating. The rating I had originally written down was... 5.0. 5.0. Oh, you sentimental old dude. <laughs> Was that rating a 5.0 because Paul McGann ends the serial by saying, one day I shall go back? Yes, one day. In an echo of Hartnell. Of, oh. Yeah, saying, one day I shall come back. Yes, one day. Oh, God. <laughs> To Susan, to the same character. I know, as though he has learned nothing. The <laughs> he has though, he has learned something, <laughs> only very slightly, only very, very slightly. <laughs> <laughs> It is no longer 5.0, though. Okay, so the reason I gave it 5.0 originally, or I was going to, was that if we're ever going to give a story 5.0, surely this is it, right? When it comes to an Eighth Doctor adventure, surely this is the very apex of the EDAs. But then there are all those negatives that we mentioned, so I I have pulled it down just a teeny tiny bit, and then I've pushed it back up again because, wow, I really enjoyed this, and I will re-listen to this at some point. Not immediately, but I will. So I'm giving this a 4.7. Okay, that's what you gave Human Resources. Oh, really? You did give Sisters of the Flame and Vengeance of Morbius a 4.9. Oh, shit balls. All right, wait, 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 wait. I'm glad that you brought that up. Wait, wait. Can it be accepted that I am giving this a 4.7 because that's how I feel right now? No. This is better. Oh, well, you've heard both, so I I can't say whether your relative judgment is correct. I think all ratings are given in context because, you know, we will come back. We could, we could, once we've done this, we could go back to the beginning and start all over again with the much greater Doctor Who knowledge that we've since acquired. Yeah, we're not doing that. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) But we would give everything a slightly different rating. Absolutely. Because our frame of reference would be that much fuller. That's very true. Had you listened to this previously, you wouldn't have given that one a 4.9. That's the rating that's incorrect. You're this right. This 4.7 is correct. Two wrongs do not make a right. No, one. you're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm done rambling. 4.7. Cool. Still higher than what I'm going to give it. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Okay, let me flesh it out. There is so much quality in this double feature. I'm sure that having listened to it once to experience the narrative and have the non-stop action and the carnage just pummel you in the earballs, you could play it all over again and really just focus on the actor's delivery. Because it struck me that everyone, apart from the minor exceptions we've already noted, was the best I've heard them. I will accept Paul McGann because his standards are always so high. Right on. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) 
Susan losing her son is genuinely affecting, even though Carol Ann Ford's acting has often left me rather cold and I thought it was a bit kitchen sinky in previous weeks. This time around, it was absolutely perfectly suited to the situation. She delivered as much as you can while still being able to be comprehensible in your dialogue delivery. It's fantastic. Graham Garden's performance, even though it's displeasing for the monk to eventually be written into a corner he can't schmooze his way out of, is still overwhelmingly a positive. The way he says penchant, how he quotes Shakespeare's Richard II just to be theatrical, how he's going at the beginning of scenes to convey cheery, carefree nonchalance is all so much fun. It's not entirely original that the Daleks would wipe out all other forms of life in the universe. Nick Briggs made a big thing out of that, saying this is what the Daleks should be doing. That's already been done by Davros in Journey's End, Nick. I think you contributed some voices to that. Also, Dolly Master Plan, Time Destructor. Yeah, but this is so deeply thought out in other respects. It's so immersive, it's so emotional. It's easily the best audiobook I've had the privilege to review so far. 4.5. 4.5 is the highest you're willing to go? Yeah. All right. Because I think that if you take the nitpicks off and Alex and the treatment of the monk and some of the decisions made in that long train, I would have gone in a different direction. That's it. That's that's all it is. As what I have, that's a solid rating and a solid review. (laughs) 0.5 away from a 5 is pretty fucking good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, It was a worthy climax to the EDAs. All right. So how do you feel? How do I feel? You've done it. It's over. Well, the Eighth Doctor Adventures are over, for now anyway. Audiobooks shall return. Audiobooks, certainly, yes. I'm curious about other Doctors now. I want to hear some other Doctors audiobooks. Big Finish audiobooks. I want to hear the Sixth Doctor, perhaps, more than anyone else, actually. (laughs) Question, though. Do Mm. you want to do that before you've seen the Sixth Doctor on television and then find out what they do with him, how they moderate his character, or develop it in other ways later? I'm up for it, yeah. I certainly didn't have any real recollection of the Eighth Doctor movie when we started doing the audiobooks. On who- oh, okay, fair enough. So it's a relatively clean slate. But then the Eighth Doctor, actually, I'm I'm cancelling out my own point. I was going to say, but the Eighth Doctor movie is something some people wish hadn't existed. But plenty of people will say the same about Colin Baker's entire TV run. <laughs> sure. So yeah, okay, yeah, we we could do it whenever. I mean, I'm happy to do any Doctor. I'm not done with Paul McGann or, uh, at all as the Doctor, but I would very much like to experience a few other Doctors in audiobook format. Mm. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe we should put it out there for podcast land. If there are particular audiobooks that you think that we should tackle, that you would like to hear us discuss, let us know. Ping us on Twitter, send us an email. You know how that stuff works. Yeah. I mean, I already know that we have to review the uh, Warmaster adventure starring oh, Derek Jacobi and Paul McGann. We must. The two of us are just going to be so wildly aroused for about an hour and a half. It's going to be oh terrible radio. <laughs> Yes, that would that would be a fantastic one to review. Absolutely. I'm also mm-hmm. curious about the ninth doctor. All of oh, a sudden yes, he that is, is showing up right now, isn't it? Yes. I mean, maybe it's too soon to jump into that, but um, at some point we will. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's my ninth doctor. <laughs> Rose. <laughs> Spot on, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll hear from uh, all those doctors very soon. Maybe, yeah. Maybe there'll be a little <laughs> holiday bonus of some sort. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. 
Okay, well, thank you so much for listening, Podcast Land. Next up, we will have this little holiday bonus. Mm-hmm. In audio land, we don't know. Please tell us. Yeah, let us know your thoughts. Classic Who, Leon, what have we got? In Classic Who, to be recorded very, very early in 2021, we have The Keeper of Traken. Mm, lovely. I don't know what Traken is, whether it's a planet, whether it's an alien, whether it's just a dude. You know what? I have no idea either. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And in the New Who channel, we've got Heaven Sent. Indeed. You know what? At some point, we will probably, I say at some point, possibly before Keeper of Traken and Heaven Sent, we may also have our standard Who Back When instant reaction to the New Year's special. Yeah. So stay tuned for Revolution of the Daleks instant reaction review. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. <laughs> Right. So, in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, and we'll tweet Merry Christmas at you. Leon, where can you be found? Oh, thank you for asking. I can be found at Ponken, P-O-N-K-E-N. We had nine months in lockdown, didn't manage a single piece of rebranding. Didn't rebrand at all. <laughs> <laughs> lockdown three. Lockdown three, definitely. Here's hoping there isn't one, but possibly. <laughs> How about you? I can be found at Drew Back When. Excellent branding. No need for rebranding. Of course not. That's it till I'm dead. <laughs> Possibly fought over by my estate. It's so valuable. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much, Podcast Land. You've been a lovely audience. We're so close to the end of 2020. Don't stop now. Keep being responsible. Keep staying safe. Catch it on the flip side. Rock on and cha-chow. Yes, please. I'm not going to get schmaltzy now because there'll be at least one bonus before the end of the year and I'll get schmaltzy then. But yes, please do be responsible. Stay safe. Ciao, ciao. Bye-bye. Kablamo! Did you enjoy the show? Then please do what the cosmos compels you to and spread the gospel of who back when. Tell your friends. But I've got no friends. No problemo. Tell some strangers. Hey! Like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash whobackwhen. All in one word. Are you into Twitter? Awesome. High five us online and we'll high five you right back. You guessed it. We're at whobackwhen. All in one word. Check us out on Instagram for behind the scenes photos and other Whovian goodness. Watch our videos or even listen to our podcast on YouTube. That's whobackwhen.com slash YouTube. Vote us up on Reddit. Listen to us on Stitcher and head on over to our website whobackwhen.com where you can submit a review of your own, browse the article archives and peruse our visual index of aliens, monsters, and more, which increases in Kablamos with every episode. And lastly, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps our show get noticed and earns you lots of karma points. That's it. Rock on and be rad and excellent to each other. Catch your earballs in our next Who review or bonus episode. Until then, cha ciao. Who back when?